All right, well, y'all can grab your handouts. And um, for some of you, welcome back. You, you've missed a couple weeks, maybe or so. And I, I mentioned this last week, um, but we are recording these, and we will have them on the website, just the audio versions each week soon, hopefully soon. Dave DeWall, our media director, is off somewhere around the world um, getting COVID, by the way. If you didn't know he got COVID, it was a mild case, but they're okay. And, uh, but anyways, so he is, I think, on their way back right now. And so when he gets back, um, he will be working on getting those posted for us. And so if you missed a week or you said, man, I got 10 questions about that one week, you can go back and listen to it and then reach out to me if you got some follow-up questions or something. Um, but tonight, I want to start in Deuteronomy. I want to start in Deuteronomy. You say, well, that's kind of a an odd spot to begin our conversation this evening when we're talking about the end times. Um, but there's an important scene that we need to kind of grasp and understand and kind of have in our minds and hearts as we kind of look at some of these passages. Uh, it's an important scene that really runs from Deuteronomy 27 through Deuteronomy 30. And it's a scene that has to do with blessings and curses, blessings and curses. And it has to do with this Mount Ebal and Mount Gerasim. Uh, just raise your hand if you're familiar with those two mounts or you remember them from reading through Deuteronomy. All right, just a couple of you, okay. Um, but let me just set the scene for you because the Israelites at this moment in time in Deuteronomy 27 through 30, they are still in the wilderness. Moses is there still leading them. And he is giving them instructions on what they are to do when they enter into the promised land. So remember, they wandered about in the wilderness for 40 years, um, largely because of their rebellion and uh, the whole golden calf scene and everything. So there they are in the wilderness, awaiting to go to the promised land. And this is the end of what we call the law. Um, if you ever hear um, people talk about the law or you see it in scripture, you know, the law and the prophets and the writings, the law is really the first five books of the Bible um, or the Torah, or the Pentateuch. Um, it's really the law. And so like the Jews, for example, in the Hebrew Bible, they see this as really one book. Um, and so it's really one book. And Joshua is not quite added to that, but it really is, is a part of that um, in some ways as well. But um, so you have the law, and we're coming to the end of that. And you know, God has given the law at Mount Sinai at this point and everything like that. But they're in the wilderness, and he's giving these giving them these instructions that this is what they're to do when they go into the promised land. Um, and the instruction is, has to do with this Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And so these, these two mounts, they're not like mountains necessarily. They're, they're kind of like uh, what we might see in Oklahoma, kind of like nice hills, you know. Um, hill, hilly, not mount, don't think Rocky Mountains, just kind of think, you know, um, the hilly mountains that we might see in Oklahoma. And they, they are right smack in the heart of really the, the promised land, um, Israel. They are right smack in the heart of it. If you know where Jerusalem is, they're just straight north of Jerusalem. Uh, and they sit very close to each other. Uh, Mount Ebal, I think, is in the north. And then Mount Gerizim is in the south. And so they sit like this in a way, and they have this valley in between them. Okay, so they have this valley in between them, and 
what Moses does here, God through Moses gives them these instructions that says, okay, when y'all get there, half of you, half of the tribes of Israel are to go to Mount Ebal, and the other half are to go to Mount Gerizim. Um, and the Levitical priests really were to stand in the valley and to pronounce what Moses is commanding them to pronounce. Uh, but really they're to pronounce blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. So if you think Mount Gerizim, those who were to pronounce the blessings were to go to Mount Gerizim. And then those who were to pronounce curses were to go to Mount Ebal. And ultimately, this is what it comes down to. This is on your, your handout here. Um, this is ultimately what it comes down to. If the Israelites loved, followed, and obeyed God, then they would be blessed. This kind of, you know, so the, the six tribes, half the Israelites would be standing on Mount Gerizim, and they would pronounce these blessings. But it all comes down to loving God, following God, and obeying God. And they'd kind of shout this out and everything. And then if the Israelites did not love, follow, and obey God, then they would be cursed. They would be cursed. And so those, the other half of the Israelites would be standing on Mount Ebal, and they would pronounce these curses. Um, and it's, it's a little bit more intense, and you say, oh, okay, they'll be cursed, and we kind of move along. If you go back, and you really should... Just go back and read through Deuteronomy 27 through 30. And most of the time, most of the, the words are spent on the curses. And basically, God is telling them, if you don't love me, you don't follow me, you don't obey me, not only are you going to be cursed, I'm going to destroy you. This is the language he uses. I will destroy you. Um, basically, what he's about to do to these nations He's going to drive them out because of their sins and their transgressions, and he's going to use Israel to do it. Um, he says, in essence, I'm going to do the same with you. He shows absolutely no favoritism in this. Um, as a matter of fact, just listen to, Deuter listen to the language here. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. This is part of the, the curses here. Just listen to that. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. He says, if you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, which are written in this book, and you do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are destroyed. You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, just as it pleased the Lord to bless you, so it will please the Lord to ruin and destroy you. You will be, remember this, you will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. And we'll stop right there. That's just kind of the language that God is presenting to ethnic Israel. 
physical Israel. You don't love me. You don't follow me. You don't obey me. You'll be cursed. In other words, I'm going to destroy you. And I'm going to uproot you from that land and take you out of it. So here you got, again, this is the end of the wilderness. They're getting ready to go in the promised land. Moses is saying, when you get into the promised land, you're to do this. I think it was like once a year you're to do this. And half the tribes are going to stand on Mount Ebal, the other half on Mount Gerizim. And the Levitical priest are to stand in the middle, and you're to pronounce exactly what all the instructions that he gives there. We don't have time to read it all. But all it comes down to is blessings and curses. right? And it all comes down to who's blessed is those who love the Lord, follow him, and obey him. Who's cursed? Those who don't love him and don't follow him and don't obey him. It should cause you to remember a Sermon on the Mount and somebody pronouncing blessings. And he also pronounced curses. And he uses this imagery of a wise and a foolish builder wise or blessed is the builder who what who hears my words and does them obeys them cursed or a fool is the one who hears these words and doesn't do them that that imagery in which jesus is pronouncing blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god those kind of blessings it, it has imagery it has connection all the way back here to mount ebal and mount gerizim it's such a huge moment in the life and the history of Israel as they are getting ready to go into the promised land. And it is a massive, massive, massive warning, warning, warning to this nation of people that they are to represent God, to reflect God, to revere God. But if they turn from him, disaster awaits them, destruction awaits them, division, darkness, um, devastation, death, so on. And then you fast forward. You fast forward after this, and we looked at a massive history lesson last week. Um, some of you are still trying to recover from that, I know. And so we, we looked at all the history, and so we know the history as we fast forward in the days of the judges and the kings, and, and then you get after David and Solomon, and you get the Rehoboams and the Jeroboam moment in which you get the split of the nation of Israel, right? Ten of the tribes go north, two of the tribes go south. So you get the northern kingdom of Israel, you got the southern king of Israel, or kingdom of Israel known as Judah. And what do we see? That all the kings up north, they're wicked, they're terrible. And all down south, a lot of them are wicked and terrible. There's some good ones in there. Um, but then eventually the northern kingdom faces exile. Assyria comes in there and in essence destroys things and takes them away. And then not long after that, do you get Babylon comes into the southern kingdom of Israel. And what do they do? They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And they take the Jews out of the land. They uproot them and take them out of the land. And so when you get to um, the book of Daniel, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 9. So when you get to the book of Daniel, at this point in Daniel's life, remember Daniel was a part of this group that was exiled by Babylon, taken captive, probably been about a teenager, maybe 15-ish years old. So he's taken captive by Babylon, taken into a foreign land. And again, at that point, Israel is divided. The north has been exiled now. Even in the days of Daniel, the southern kingdom, Judah has been taken over. 
They're in exile in a foreign land. And the things that Moses talked about, that God talked about through Moses, hundreds and hundreds of years later now, in the life of Daniel and the Israelites have now come true. And they now are coming true. And as we're going to see, it's not quite finished yet. Things will come true. Um, and so Daniel's writing these words about events that have come to pass or coming to pass and which will come to pass. And it's all because of the Israelites' failure to grasp this and actually do this. That's what it all comes down to. They didn't love God. They didn't follow him. They didn't obey him. So now you get to this moment in, in Daniel. Now do you get exiled. Now do you get Jerusalem's destroyed. Now do you get the temple is destroyed that Solomon had built and so on and so forth um, because they failed to represent God, reflect God, and revere God. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, they actually became worse than the nations they drove out. Um, but at the time of Daniel chapter 9, time's gone on. And remember, as we looked at last week, so Babylon takes over that southern kingdom of Israel. Things are going nice for Babylon for a time. But then Persia takes over Babylon just a few decades later, not very much longer later. And Persia takes over. And um, a guy by the name of Cyrus is leading the Persian Empire who takes over Babylon. And he kind of wants to have this goodwill campaign. And the goodwill campaign is, hey, I need to try to respect the different nations and religions that we've just taken over. Um, and so I'm going to allow the Jews, some of them, to return back to Israel to try and rebuild their city, to try to rebuild their religious temple and so on and so forth. This is the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and so he lets some of them go back. Well, at the time of Daniel chapter 9, as Daniel tells us in verse 1, the Israelites, as we trace this back with the timeline, the Israelites are one year away, one year away from being allowed by Persia to go back into the land to Jerusalem. And what do we read in chapter 9? Like, look at verse 3. This, in essence, actually, just go back to verse, um, verse 2. So in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. This goes back to Jeremiah 29 and really into chapter 31. Um, so he's, he's, he's talking about all these things. He's trying to recollect what's going on during his timeline. Um, and then we get to verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession. I made confession. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly and we have rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Who's he talking about? He's talking about we, the nation of Israel. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our um, kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, 
because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the, pro- the prophets. Hear this, verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law, and we have turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, think Mount Ebal, think Mount Ebal, the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. So he kind of goes on a little bit more, but here's, here's in essence what, what David is saying in his prayer. We've sinned. We haven't upheld this. We didn't love you. We didn't follow you. We didn't obey you. Well, so now what's happening? Now the curse and the oath that you wrote back then, all that warning, 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 all of that that you wrote, now it's being poured out upon us. Again, think about the days of Daniel. He was exiled from his own country. I mean, imagine another country coming into the United States and taking all of us captive and to some foreign, foreign culture or country. Right? In essence, what happened right, with Hamas going into Israel, taking all these innocent people and taking them out of their land. Right? Imagine that on a, a massive massive level. That's what happens to the Israelites. They're taken out. They're uprooted. And so here's Daniel. He knows that Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. His people are divided. There's destruction. There's, there's, there's desolation. There's devastation. There's death and darkness. And he's praying to the Lord, and he's admitting, he's confessing why this happened. Because of this. The Lord told him, when you go in the promised land, you got to love me. you got to follow me. you got to obey me or else these things are going to happen. So now you go down to verse 16. And so now Daniel is praying and he's pleading, O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, just let your anger and your wrath just turn away from what? From your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. So now, therefore, O Lord, our God, just listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, your temple, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. And then he goes on to say later on in verse 19, Oh, Lord, forgive us, pay attention and act, delay not for your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So it's a very sad cry. It's a very sad prayer. Daniel recognizes the devastation and the desolation of the city of David. Think about it in the days of Solomon, all its glory and splendor, and now it's just a, it's just a rubble. It's just nothing. So there's sin, there's rebellion, there's all these things going on. And Daniel, in essence, is saying, Lord, we're done. You've poured out this, this judgment on us. This, this, all these things that you went all the way back here to Deuteronomy, you poured all that out upon us. We're, we're finished, in essence. So please just forgive us. Please just restore to us the, the glory of the former days, in essence, is what he's pray, praying for. And this is what God's reply is. And this is where we get this seven years of tribulation. Right? This is where it really comes down to this is kind of the foundational passage 
This is God's reply to what Daniel just prayed. So think about everything Daniel's going on to. Think about all that's transpiring at this moment. This is God's reply, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up both vision and prophecy, and to anoint a most holy place. So know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the temple. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So again, let's stop right there. This is where we get the seven years of tribulation. I'll, I'll summarize it by quoting this one source who I think summarizes it pretty well. And they say this, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, what we just read there towards the end, reveals the purpose and the time of the tribulation. This passage speaks of 70 weeks that have been declared against your people. Remember, God's talking to Daniel in this. And Daniel's people are who? The Jews, the, the nation or the ethnic Israel. And Daniel 9.24 speaks of a period of time in which God's purpose is to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So God declares that 77s will fulfill all these things. And the sevens are, you should see this here. So 77s are 70 weeks of years, depending on your translation. The sevens are groups of years. The sevens are groups of years. So 70 is 490 years. That's a long time. But in Daniel 9, 25, and 26, we keep reading that the Messiah will be cut off after seven sevens and 62 sevens, which is 69, 69 total sevens, beginning with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. 
Remember, Daniel's one year away from some of the Jews going back into Jerusalem to declare, hey, we need to rebuild Jerusalem. We need to rebuild the temple and so on. So in other words, 69 sevens or 483 years after the decree to rebuild is issued, the Messiah will die or be cut off. The source goes on to say that biblical historians confirm that 483 years passed from the time of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the time when Jesus was crucified. And there's a lot with that, a lot of history there. But most Christian scholars, regardless of their view of eschatology, the study of the end times, have the above understanding of Daniel's 77s. So in other words, God said that 70 weeks had been determined, 490 years, but with the death of the Messiah, we only have 69 weeks accounted for, 483 years. This leaves one seven-year period to be fulfilled to what? To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And this final seven-year period is what we call the tribulation, the time when God finishes judging Israel, or at least ethnic Israel. And so, in other words, from the time that it's declared, hey, we need to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple to the point of Jesus being crucified, that's where you get the 483 years leaving just one seven-year period to finish the transgression or to finish the judgment on ethnic Israel. Remember, what Daniel is seeing here is that God is pouring out the oath or promising or fulfilling the promise of the oath that he laid out at the end of Deuteronomy. But here's where the debate lies, right? This is where the debate really lies. Um, what we think of as the seven-year period of tribulation on Israel is described by Daniel. The question is, has it already happened? Is it symbolically happening right now? Or will it literally happen in the future? More specifically, is it a seven-year tribulation unique to ethnic Israel in the days of Daniel or the days of Jesus? Is it unique to ethnic Jews today? Or is it applicable to the world? Or both? This is where the debate really lies, and we're going to try to answer that hopefully tonight or next week. Um, but here's the thing. No doubt, no matter where people fall on this, no doubt when it comes to the end times, the end of all things, there will be general tribulation. There will at least be general tribulation. It seems very, very likely and plausible that the New Testament anticipates and expects a progression towards great, severe tribulation, meaning things will progressively or suddenly become very bitter, very dark, horrific, um, desolate, and not just true of one little region, but globally. Um, very bad things, right? We're talking deception. We're, we're talking division, darkness, destruction, desolation, devastation, death. We could go on and on. Just listen to how Paul talks about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, mark this, Timothy. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They'll be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. They will be without love. They'll be unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, 
rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Uh, again, Paul is anticipating things are currently bad in Timothy's day, in his day, but will seemingly progressively get worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, just look at the book of Revelation, which will, again, begin next semester, but it's like a modern-day plague narrative, right? Cosmic events, wars, disasters, sicknesses, and so on. But again, what we think of as the seven-year period of tribulation on Israel, as described by Daniel specifically, has it already happened? Is it symbolically happening right now, or will it literally happen in the future? Again, more specifically, is it a seven-year tribulation unique to ethnic Israel in the days of Daniel or, or Jesus? Is it unique to Jewish, ethnic Jews today, or is it applicable to the whole world? Uh, that's what we need to answer. So again, in order to answer that, we need to remember what's the purpose? What's the purpose of what Daniel was told? What's the purpose of the tribulation by what was told to Daniel? Well, again, this passage speaks of 70 weeks that have been declared against Daniel's people. Daniel's people were ethnic Jews at this time, the physical nation of Israel. Why? It goes back to here. How do I know that? Because Daniel said that in Daniel chapter 9. He said that the, the oaths that you laid out for us right here, if we did not obey, if we did not love you and follow you and obey you, it's pouring out on us right now. Again, place yourself in the shoes of Daniel. Everything that has transpired, and if you go back and read Deuteronomy 27 through 30, the descriptions... You're like, man, they just lived through it. Daniel could sit there and say, man, my family, my friends just lived through that. This, this is happening. It was horrific when it happened. Um, they failed to love the Lord their God, to follow him, to obey him. As Moses said, they must do, or as God through Moses said, they must do. And so remember what Daniel said in Daniel 9-11, that all Israel has transgressed your law. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey. And thus the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, right here, the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. Therefore now in the days of Daniel, there's darkness, there's destruction, there's quite literally desolation. It's the language he uses of Jerusalem and of the temple. Even when they go back, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, and they go back, what do they find? They find that it's not just desolate physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, it's unrecognizable. They, they can't even recognize it. And then when they go to try to rebuild everything, everybody's like, this is nothing like what it was back in the day. Right? The good old days, the, the glorious days of old. The, the, it, there's always still this anticipation, expectation that, man, God's got something in store for us in the future. Some point in time, he's going to restore the city of Jerusalem and the temple, the sanctuary, God's dwelling place. He's going to bring his glory again here one day. And this is why it's so big that when Jesus comes onto the scene, the Messiah, the anointed one, and Herod building his temple, that people think, ah, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment. We'll look at that in a second. But there is this sense in Daniel 9 of a final judgment to come, to finish this transgression, to finally put an end to sin to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, which I know or hope that you know who this is who brings these things. 
But to seal up vision and prophecy, as Paul would say, all the prophecies have their yes in Jesus, and to anoint the most holy. Now, again, has this final judgment already come? Is it happening now? Did it happen in the days of Daniel? Or will it come? And I would argue specifically that this initial final judgment that Daniel is being told about on ethnic Israel has already transpired. Has already transpired. Now, I'm going to explain to you, though, in a moment that prophecies can have an immediate application and then a future, future application. In other words, it can be both and. So hold on with me for a second. I would argue that what Daniel is being presented here, that that final seven years has already transpired on ethnic Israel. And you say, well, why would you think that? Because of Jesus and the Gospels. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let's let's look at Luke's Gospel for a moment. Just look at Luke 19 for a moment. Just look at Luke 19 for a moment. Luke 19 Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. This is the moment of the triumphal entry. And so they get the colt and everything like that. They throw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. Look at Luke 19, uh, verse 37. So they got the, the, the cloaks on the donkey. They got him on there. They're throwing it on the ground and everything. Look at verse 37. When Jesus came near the place... Where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, right? You've got to slow this down a little bit. The Mount of Olives is on the east side. And so he's coming down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. The whole crowd of disciples, hear this, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Now, in John's gospel, one of the big miracles that he would say, the reason why so many people gather is because the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's why many people had gathered this day to celebrate. But here, that's a key detail. Joyfully, they are praising God in loud voices, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? So do you see the imagery? Everybody's jumping out. They're waving the palm branches and everything. This is a huge moment. He's coming down the Mount of Olives, which goes right down into Jerusalem. And, of course, some of the Pharisees in the crowd are saying, hey, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Meaning, who they think you are, you're not, so rebuke them. That's very clear. The Pharisees don't believe in who Jesus is. And Jesus says, well, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, I'm the creator of the cosmos. It was by me and through me that all things exist. But hear this. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city... This is the city going all the way, step back in the Old Testament kind of imagery, the city where he chose to place his name, the city of David, where his people were to love him, and this was to be like the heart of the, the nation of Israel. When he sees the city, he wept over it. See, we don't think about this, the triumphal entry. Jesus is weeping as he's going down into Jerusalem, and the crowd is oblivious to it. They're just joyfully jumping up and down because they think, Oh, this is when the temple is going to be rebuilt. The glory is going to return to us. Why is he weeping over it? He said, if even you, Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Remember we looked at the fall of Jerusalem last week. Remember what Rome did? They encircled Jerusalem right before they burned it down and destroyed it. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This is very similar to what we saw with the exile with Babylon. And what are they going to do? They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God is in their midst, and they've rejected him. Because they're still doing this. Just like what they did in Daniel's day, they're still doing this. And this is not the only time that Jesus in Luke's gospel actually weeps and laments over Jerusalem. He does it earlier on back in Luke 13. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you stone those sent to you. How often I, Yahweh in human form, have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus says. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about Jerusalem itself. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so here you got in Luke 19, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's weeping. He's repeating himself. They still don't get it. So again, you go back to the triumphal entry, Luke 19. He's weeping. And from there, Jesus goes into what? The temple. This marks the last week before he dies. This is the big, this is why he came to lay down his life for sinners. This is the big moment. This is the last week. And all that week leading up to his death, he spends time at the temple. Every day he went to the temple. Every day he went to the temple courts. Every day he went to the temple. All the focus is on the temple. Now, this is interesting because he goes right into the temple in Luke at the end of Luke 19, and he clears the temple courts out, right? He says, hey, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. That, you know, you remember that. He's turning things over. Well, in John's gospel, John's gospel spends most of the time just on that last week. And so in John chapter 2, it's the same setting. It's the same event. But John gives us a little bit more details. And in John chapter 2, what we read is that Jesus says, hey, stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remember that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a quote from Psalm 69. The Jews then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Boom, that should have blew their minds right there. Remember, this is God incarnate. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. Not a building, but a person. He's the exact imprint of God's very nature. And so, this is what he says. So destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they reply, hey, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Remember, this is Herod's temple. We looked at that last week. It didn't, wasn't actually completed until 63 AD, the finishing touches. So they're saying, hey, it's taken 46 years to rebuild this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But John clarifies, the temple he had spoken of was his body, which is much greater than a building. And after he was raised from the dead... His disciples recalled what he had said. 
Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So then you go back to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, and we see that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And we see Luke tells us in Luke 24, 45, then he opened their minds so they could actually understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is risen, written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead when? On the third day. The temple has been raised in glory, honor, perfection. So then you go back to Luke chapter 19. Let's go back to Luke 19, the triumphal entry. He goes down in there, goes into the temple, casts it all out. And again, the focus in Luke's gospel is all on this. And we find, in my opinion, the most revealing, clear declaration against Israel. And it's in Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 19. And it's called, you'll notice this parable, you'll recognize the parable of the wicked tenants. So this is what Jesus said. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and he rented it to some farmers. The farmers did not own the land, right? God owns the land. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the land itself. He owns the cosmos. But he rents out the land to who? Some farmers. And then he went away for a very long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, to the farmers, so they would give him some of the fruit to the vineyard. But the tenants beat him. They sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. So then, still, the man who had planted the vineyard still sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard, we're talking about God here, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. He's talking about Jesus. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will revere him. Remember there to reveal the one true and eternal God's name, Yahweh. Perhaps they'll revere his name. But that's not what they did. What did they do? When the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. And we see this all throughout the gospel accounts. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard. Now that's interesting. They crucified Jesus right outside Jerusalem. So now Jesus has in mind here Jerusalem, the land. They threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. So Jesus asked after the parable, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy kill those tenants and what and give the vineyard to others remember what remember what god said i will uproot you i will uproot you so when the people heard this of course they said well god forbid that that's not going to happen jesus looked directly at them and he asked them what is the meaning of that which is written the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and so it is a parable that gut punches you. And to me, it's one of the most clear declarations from God on the state of his people who refuse to love him, refuse to follow him, and refuse to obey him. And there's more to that. There's more and more and more. But all of that sets up Luke's big 
climactic moment before Jesus' betrayal and death and resurrection. This is the last thing we read in Luke's gospel right before Jesus' arrest, betrayal, and all that kind of stuff. Luke 21, verse 1. And this is what we see. So Jesus is sitting there at the temple. He's at the temple treasury. He's watching people putting in their offerings, their tithes. And he sees the, you know, the poor widow who puts in the two coins. It's everything she had and so on and so forth. And he's saying, hey, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, she gave everything she had to live on. So there's that scene. And then they're leaving the temple. Verse 5. They're leaving the temple. And some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple, right? This is Herod's temple. How the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus says, hey, as for what you see here, the time will come and not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Again, he said the same thing when he's coming into his triumphal entry and he's weeping over Jerusalem. He said the same thing. Teacher, they asked. Now they're later on at the Mount of Olives as we see Matthew's account. But verse 7, Luke 21 here. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? And he replied, watch out that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and uprising, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences and various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and they will persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors and all on the account of my name. You read the book of Acts, you see all this occur. And so you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Remember, they couldn't even do that in Acts. All they can say is, man, these people have been with Jesus. That's all their, their response could be. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Right? As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, right? Those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. For the, for the Christian, death has been defeated. You will not perish, but you shall live. So when you see Jerusalem, he goes on, verse 20, so when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea, when this happens, flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. So go all the way back to Daniel 9. What? To finish transgression, right? To finish the judgment on them. To go all, and, it's, and remember Daniel's words, it has everything to do with this. But what is Jesus envisioning here? Well, we looked at the fall of Jerusalem last week, right? We looked at that, and what did we find in the fall of Jerusalem? That in 66 AD, there was a Jewish revolt in Jerusalem. They drove out Roman power and authority, and the zealots took over the city. You think everything's going to be nice and pleasant now from here on out, but there was division inside the city, almost like a mini civil war inside Jerusalem, people taking sides, Things getting worse and worse and worse. And then finally what happens, Rome gets a new leader and says, we need to put an end to this little revolt in this small little minuscule Jerusalem. 
And so what does he do? He sends an entire army in 70 AD, three and a half years after the revolt. They surround Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover. So you got all these, these Jews entering into the city. They're entering and they're entering and they're entering. And then Rome, what? Seals them in, shuts them in, and they starve them. And then finally they get bored. And then they burn the city down. They burn the temple down. Thus, as we saw last week, you go to Jerusalem today and still see the remaining remnants of that broken, destroyed temple all the way back to 70 AD. But the war didn't end until Masada in 73 AD, a seven-year war. And Jesus explains it by the detail here. And he goes on and on and on. But this is one of the big moments Big teaching moments within the climax of Luke's gospel. Some of the last teaching recorded is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. Remember, this is all in Luke's gospel been building up to this. The focus on the temple, the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, the desolation of this. And it's all because they didn't love him. They didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to obey him. And here, and I'll end with this, this is the great irony. It all came, their actual fall and destruction came at the hands of the great enemy known as Rome. The one who, at this point, had desolated them already, taken their freedom, taken their independence. The one who, unbeknownst to them, actually crucified the anointed one. Rome, who had leaders professing and claiming and celebrating themselves as deities in human form. For example, take Caesar Augustus. We talk about him around Christmas time. Why? Because he was the first emperor of Rome after the Republic, right? Julius Caesar is, is assassinated, and then here comes one of his little family members known as Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. He takes leadership right before Jesus is born and then would die when Jesus is probably around 15 or so years old. But here's the amazing thing about Caesar Augustus is that he literally self-declared himself as the son of God. As the high priest over Rome, the high priest over all the priests. And so when they, remember they declared, we have no king but Caesar? Remember that when they said, hey, you know, at least for us Barabbas, we have no king but Caesar. What they were declaring was, we have no God but Caesar. Remember, they rejected God himself because they could not see the fulfillment of Jesus' presence among them, God himself. And Jesus is born right smack in the middle of Caesar Augustus' reign. That's no coincidence at all. The Son of God is actually born right there among them, but they choose Caesar and so this is one of the big teaching moments within the climax of Luke's gospel. So the last teaching recorded, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Rome, their great enemy, the one who had desolated already their very lives. And so we'll look a little bit more at what I was going to look at later, but I want to go all the way back to finish this Deuteronomy 30. And we'll see this a little bit more next week as we finish up talking about the tribulation. And that even despite all this, God brought an end to many things with the destruction and the desolation of all these things. We'll look more at that next week. 
But if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 30, there is a sliver of hope despite all this and what is to come. So in Deuteronomy 30, Moses writes, When all these blessings and these curses have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. Remember what Peter, he was even writing to those who were dispersed. When your God disperses you among the nations and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and you obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. This is language we'll see Jesus use. This is language we see in Revelation. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors. And hear this. And you will take possession of it. And he will make you more prosperous in that day and numerous than your ancestors. Hear this. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. The Lord your God will what? Circumcise your hearts. He does that only in and through the Holy Spirit that he gives you. He will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. For what purpose? So that then you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And then you will live. And then the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies. Those who hate you and persecute you. Remember what Jesus said? They'll hate you and they'll persecute you. Why? Because they rejected God himself. But those who love him and place faith in him, he will circumcise their heart. They'll be a new creation in Christ, a new people, a new humanity. And they will be set free in Christ. And they will belong, as we'll see in Galatians, to the free Jerusalem, which is in heaven. We'll look more at that next week. Any questions before we close? So I'll, I'll finish you with this, because we're going to cover this next week. So while I said I believe that the immediate context has already been fulfilled, I also believe that prophecies have an immediate application, but also a future-future application, and that there is a great tribulation coming. And perhaps it is a seven-year tribulation, but we'll see perhaps what that means next week. Let me close this in prayer, then you all be dismissed. Father, we come to you right now. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your words. We thank you for Jesus. You're pleased to have your fullness dwell in him, the exact imprint of your very nature. The word become flesh. And Father, I pray that in all things we would choose Jesus as our Lord, as our God. Surrendering our lives to him, placing faith in him. We thank you for that, for that those who do, they're a new creation. Born again. Circumcision not of the flesh, but of the heart. Born not of flesh, but of the spirit. Sons and daughters, heirs, brothers and sisters to Christ for what you have in store for your bride. We thank you. We love you. But I pray, Lord, that we would 
obey you, follow you, and love you. And I pray that not just for us in this room, but for those across this world. Draw their hearts and minds to you for your glory before it's too late. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, thank you all. If you've got any questions, I'll be up here. But if not, we will see you later. Mm-hmm.